In the name of the true and living God, amen. Please be seated. There used to be a tradition to compose what your last words were going to be. It was something where noteworthy people would rehearse their last words and have them practiced and ready to go so that when they were literally on their deathbed and breathing their last breaths, they would say these last words and then people would hear them and write them down and remember them forever. Um, Another option was to compose the words that were to go on your tombstone, on your epitaph. Now, as a aside, <laughs> early in the sermon, I want to mention this. I, I had COVID for the last two weeks, and uh, so I was home for a bit, which gave me the opportunity to a lot of, a lot of binge watching and watched uh, a lot of Ken Burns. And so I've learned a lot of things in the last couple of weeks, and um, one of the shows that, that I got to see was the documentary about Benjamin Franklin. And he is one of the people who wrote what his epitaph was going to be on his tombstone. Interestingly, he changed his mind, and when he actually did die, he had changed the plan. And so if you go to Philadelphia and see his grave, it says, here lies Benjamin and Deborah Franklin. But what it was going to say was this. The body of B. Franklin Printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out. And stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author, who, of course, is God the Creator. Isn't it amazing, Benjamin Franklin, the type of person that he was, even with his dying words, or intended to be dying words, was still aspiring to be a better person. And he gave a reflection to the world about what he believed, about what was to come. Well, here in the Gospel of John, the words that we just heard read um, from that Gospel, we hear about the last words of Jesus when he sits with his friends for the last time, to have his last supper together with them. And interestingly, they probably do not know that this is the last supper with him, but he knows it's his last teaching that he can offer to them. And here at St. John's Church, you know, we are named after uh, the writer of the Gospel of John, and all of the stained glass windows, almost all of them, are depictions of scenes from that particular gospel, from the gospel of John. And if you see right behind our altar, where we remember the Last Supper every Sunday, we see that scene. Not only is it the Last Supper, but specifically that's the Last Supper from the gospel of John. One of the disciples that is mentioned only in his gospel is mysteriously called the beloved disciple. And many people think that that was probably the author pointing to himself. If you believe that, that the writer of the gospel was one of the disciples, it was probably John, the beloved disciple. He's the one who's leaning on Jesus' shoulder at the table. And in that scene, Jesus says to the people, I'm leaving this teaching for you, and I'm 
listen to what I'm about to say because it's important. I am giving you a new commandment now. And of course, the commandment that he gives is to love one another. He asks them to love each other in the way that he has loved them. Of all that he taught during his life and all that he showed, these are the words that he wanted them to hear at the last, before he departed. Well, also in the book of Revelation, which we heard earlier, in a way, that is a final book that we get in the collection of books that makes up the Bible. In some ways, it's the last words that we are left with. And these words that we heard this morning from Revelation are hopeful words. And they're words that, even though they were written hundreds of years ago, are important words now for us to hear. We hear that God is doing a new thing and that the home of God is among mortals. Now stop and take that in for a second, for God to say the home of God is going to be among mortals. That goes against the way that we often view things, that our habit is to think that God's home is not actually on this plane, but of course it's somewhere better, somewhere above. God's home is up in the sky. You can imagine that it's perfect up there. The uh, Christian historian and observer of the Christian faith, Diana Butler Bass, has pointed out that sometimes church falls into a mode of what she calls elevator faith. Elevator faith being that the purpose of religion in that mode is to press the right button so that you will go up. And you don't want to press the wrong button, which would make you go down either. And it's even shown in church architecture. If you look around, many churches have steeples that really look like rocket ships ready to blast off. And in that view of faith, the idea is that the whole purpose is to escape, for us to escape this plane, to go somewhere else. And yet, in Revelation, that's not what we hear. In fact, we hear the opposite. God is going to make God's home among us among mortals. It makes sense that we would think that God would live in the sky because here we see so much that is wrong, so much hurt, so much suffering. The world's problems and suffering today seem actually like they're greater than ever. We, this weekend, are recognizing the one million who have died from COVID just in our country. Many of whom didn't need to die. If we could have only worked together and worked against the disease instead of working against each other. And the hurt and the fear being experienced all over the world, especially in places like Ukraine right now. And also this weekend in Buffalo, where an anti-black hate crime, a mass murder has just occurred and the pain that so many in our country are bracing for as women's rights over their own bodies are about to be taken away. And perhaps most alarming of all for us in this country is the inability for there to be agreement about what is truth and what is fact. We as a people 
are full of confusion and hurt right now. And we could ask who is to blame, but diagnosing the problem in this case may not actually be what will lead to solving the problem in this case. A different question to ask is, in spite of all this, in spite of our collective fallen nature as human beings, are we collectively, all of us, are we worthy of love? The question is not merely are we ourselves and the people that we like to associate with, whoever those people are, worthy of love, but rather that greater sense of who we is. Are we all collectively, including those people that we don't like, worthy of love? And this is where Jesus' good news is scandalous news because the answer is yes. God's home is among mortals. In spite of us, God chooses to love us and to be with us. And when we choose to love one another, his home is here. Philip Yancey is a well-known Christian writer, uh, probably most well-known for a book he wrote called What's So Amazing About Grace, which comes from his experiences of growing up and, and really struggling with his faith. He grew up in a household where faith was a strong part of their upbringing, but it ran up into a lot of problems. And recently, um, very recently, he's written a memoir about his whole life. And um, he was being interviewed about that and reflected on how his rigid religious upbringing and the lessons that he had to unlearn um, were all part of it. And then he noticed that, or he reflected that you know, many people are saying that right now it's, it's the worst that it's ever been in terms of the divisions in our country. He said, well, actually, he remembers the 60s. Things were really bad then, too. And then he continues and talks about Martin Luther King. And he observes how with Martin Luther King, it wasn't just his ability for eloquence. It wasn't just his courage, but it was his absolute consistency of being committed to love. Being committed to no matter what comes at you, no matter how horrible, to respond in love no matter what, every time. A very hard thing to teach and a very hard thing to practice, but the thing is, for him, the goal was not merely to change laws, but to change hearts. Philip Yancey says, and I believe it's true, that we need more leadership, and specifically more religious leadership, to claim what King was claiming. In this place, St. John's, I believe at its best, we are a place with diverse views, but with a shared value on loving one another. In the beginning of the story of the Gospel of John, we hear about God's glory becoming visible when the Word becomes flesh and lives among us. And then at the table toward the end of the Gospel, with his disciples, Jesus offers this final commandment about God's glory becoming visible once again, but in a new way, 
God's glory becoming visible to the world through our love. Not something necessarily that God is doing, but that we are doing. Or rather, that we let God do through us. When we love one another, we make the Lord known. God's glory can be seen. We fulfill the beautiful words that we hear in Revelation, that God's home is not elsewhere, but rather it is here. Among us mortals, even in the midst of our troubles and our sufferings, together with God's grace, we can aspire to something more. We can be agents of something better. Amen.